You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Jesus is presented at the temple. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, the firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with this is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him what was the custom, of the, the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of our Lord. Well, so much of life is really one decision stacked on top of another decision, is it not? Some decisions are little, some decisions are quite big. I have these, uh, and you do too, these, I call them pivot points, turning points in your life. And it could be starting from when you're even a kid. I remember in high school deciding how am I going to spend my time, this sport, that sport, this activity, that activity, which, which college am I going to go to, and how do you make that decision, which I've, I think I've told you why I went to TCU is because... Um, I thought the, their mascot being a horned frog was funny. That was one reason. And because, this is true, I liked the color purple. That was it. Isn't that great? I was like, I was six years old when I went to college or something. Like, yay, purple, and I went. But I'm making these decisions, and you got like, okay, like college decision, and then you've got decisions. Maybe there's some shifts going on about who are you going to marry? Are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? What's your job you're going to take? What's the major you're going to have? And all those decisions, some of them are, um, are big turning points, and some of them are actually pretty difficult to go back on. You can't, um, you know, like once your kids are empty nester, like once you're an empty nester, you can't really re-raise your children, like that time's gone. Uh, you know, you can go back to college, but you can't go back to being, you know, a 19-year-old kid in college. You can't go back and relive it in that sense. And so we have these turning points, these pivot points in our life. And um, one of the biggest uh, weapons of the enemy is regret. 
Because you can get to one of these points and you can look back. Like, I'll just take, like, I've got three kids. So one, one, one's in high school. Oh, man. And so, like, when she graduates and maybe gets through college and then all of a sudden she's now out on her own, maybe she gets married. And so she's living. It's going to be so easy to go, up. Well, I, I can't re-raise her. Not like I don't have a relationship. I hope I still have a great relationship with her. But it's, it's changed now. Like, our, our dynamic has changed. And um, I'm not... A perfect parent. By the way, if you have kids, you are not a perfect parent. And if you think you are, go ask your grown kids their opinion about that. And hopefully they'll shoot you straight. And so what happens is you probably, if you've got grown kids, you probably did some things well and you probably did some things you wish you would do differently. And so um, what can happen is the regret of the mistakes can outweigh the joy of the victories. And so one of the greatest tricks the enemy pulls is to just to make you live and walk around with regret. And today, as we look at this text that you just heard read, one of the things we're going to see is, is really two things. One is, um, how can we not be there? Like, if, if you are someone going, oh my gosh, this phase of my life, I, I totally messed, I messed up that marriage or that kid or that my college years or my high school years or, or whatever it is. How do we live with that? Because I don't want you to carry that guilt and regret. And we'll show you how to, how to get rid of that in a moment. And then the other piece is this, is because we all have one uh, milestone that's coming, one little pivot point in our life. Having a wonderful afternoon in the beautiful Colorado summer, hummingbirds and flowers sitting out in our porch and kids playing fetch with the dog and I ruined it. I'm sitting there with Nikki and I said two things actually. I said, you know, in 24 years, I'll be 70. <laughs> she was like looking at the hummingbird like it's... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and uh, she, she takes consolation. She'll always be uh, younger than me. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, but the other thing I said is, or, um, I said, you know, we go to church Sunday, and everybody that is there in the room, from the oldest to the youngest down in the nursery to the baby that's in the womb right now, we have this in common, that one day we won't be here. That's coming. I say that with the greatest of sensitivity. We have lost some titans in the faith over the past few weeks, months, and years. But that's something we have in common. And I don't want people to get to that point and look back and go, oh, man, and just be racked with regret. And so this text actually helps us with that quite a bit. How do we get rid of regret and guilt we're carrying now? And also, how can we, because we're still here, how can we avoid it? In the future. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. If you want to have your Bible out and kind of keep your finger there, I need to set this up a little bit because in the story you've got Mary and Joseph and um, Mary and Joseph, Roman law, remember there was a census, it moved them from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem and now Jewish law is going to take them from where they are to the temple because they are devout Jews, they're followers of Yahweh. And so this story, you see Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to the temple for two reasons. One is um, for a Jew, when a woman has a baby, she is um, not sinfully impure, but she is ceremoni ceremonially impure. And so she has to go after, um, after eight days, if it's a boy, they circumcise the boy. And if it's a boy, in 33 days after that, so it's really a total of 40 days, they go to the temple and they offer sacrifices. They go to the priest, he declares them clean, and they offer a sacrifice, and then she's able to reassimilate a bit into society. 
And then the second thing they do is they would go and they would actually offer um, by way of dedication, not, not a sacrifice, but just by way of dedication, their firstborn son. That's what you're supposed to do. And so they're, they're doing that, and that's clear in the Old Testament. That's what they're called to do. So they go, because Mary is ceremonially unclean, they go to make the proper sacrifices and be declared clean by the priest. They go to the temple, and then also they are going to, um, they're, they're going to it's the redemption of the firstborn son, but they're really dedicating this child to the Lord. Now, let me just tell you, um, first of all, especially I'll speak to those of us, I've got my my kids at home with me right now, I've got three kids. Um, What they are doing, what Mary and Joseph are doing, is they are going uh, to the temple and saying, this is not our kid, this is your kid, and for some reason, we've got him. That's what this ceremony is means. This is not our child. We are publicly declaring and reminding ourselves, this is your kid, God. And by the way, when it says the firstborn child, uh, it doesn't, the, the, the ritual wasn't there just to go, well, this is the firstborn, and then the rest of them are all yours to do with whatever you want. The idea is you are taking the firstborn symbolically to say, our children are yours. And I have to tell you, for this phase for me where I've got kids at home and there's some of you here in that same place or some of you have older kids and your grandkids are in this phase, um, this is one of the biggest truths that parents need to remember is these are not our kids. I've probably said my kids like four times already. So that's just how we talk, I get that. But really what we remember is these are God's kids. You know what that helps? That helps me think of as a parent, what are the things that are non-negotiable with my kids? I just did it, God's kids that he's entrusted to me. What are the things that are non-negotiable? Does God care if Seth is the greatest baseball player that ever lived? Is he going, boy, I hope he's a, a good outfielder. That's really my deep desire of my heart. No, I look at this and I go, if this is God's kid, not mine, and I've got him under my roof for 18 years and then hopefully, Lord willing, a different relationship, but with them still even into adulthood, What does God want for his kid? And you start parenting like that and you get to the end of the time when you are empty nesters and you look and go, still your kid. That's what it means about redeeming the firstborn. Now let me show you what happens here. Verse 22, it says, when the time came for their purification, remember that line, their purification according to the law of Moses, so in the first five books of the Bible, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Important verse 22, when the time came for their purification, they brought him up. That's talking about Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus up. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so I I set the scene a little bit, but I want to call your attention to this. The time came for their purification. And it says, according to the law of Moses. So in other words, he's saying, um, Luke, this researcher, is saying, according to the Old Testament law, they, the two, came for their purification. But actually, Mary is the only one that needs to go for a time of purification. Joseph doesn't. Why does it say there? And if, if you read commentators, they're all over the map. There's some that would even go so far as to say this is just a mistake. 
uh, in the Bible. I, I tell you, we believe in the verbal plenary, it's called inspiration of the Bible, meaning it's not just we believe the thoughts of the Bible or um, some of the concepts or the stories in the Bible are inspired by God, but the very words in the original Hebrew and Greek and then some Aramaic, those are inspired by God down to the word. This is a carefully chosen word. And then you've got Luke, who, if you remember, is the only Greek author, he's the only non-Jewish author, Greek author, in the entire New Testament. This is like, he's got a great mastery of the Greek language. This isn't some mistake that it's there. And it clearly says, they both walk for their purification. What is he saying? Here's what I think he's saying. In that time, you've got the Greek culture and you've got the Roman culture and their views about men and women and marriage in particular. And the women in that culture especially were there to um, provide offspring. They were there to provide kids. They were there to look beautiful. And so in the Greek and Roman culture, once you were past childbearing years and once you hit a certain age and maybe didn't look like you used to, it was culturally permissible to sort of put them on the outskirts. It was a very much male-dominated um, relationship in the marriage. And I think what Luke is doing is, remember, he's writing to Greeks. And I think what he's doing is he's writing and saying, Mary had the issue, but this, the, these Jews have this, have this crazy concept from the Old Testament that says when you are married, you're no longer two, but you are one. So if Mary has a problem, Joseph has a problem. And they're going up together. I think he's teaching a countercultural view of marriage that in the, in the light of everything that was going on in those cultures like I just described and men and women and marriage, he's saying, but these people that are followers of God have a different way of looking at it. I think he's teaching in this moment. Let me give you an example. If I'm in my office just going, oh my goodness, I am, I am stressed. I need a break. Things are so crazy right now. And I go, I gotta go home and I just need to ask Nikki, can I just, I just gotta get away for a couple days and I, we need to figure this out. I'm just, things are so crazy. And Nikki's at home and she's there at the house and then I come home and um, she goes, Jim, can I talk to you for a minute? And I say, yeah, well, I need to talk to you, but go ahead, you go first, sweetie. And she goes, I am so stressed right now. My schedule, my calendar, my everything, my family, my, our money, our, the kids' schedules, the house, the whatever. I'm so stressed right now. I really need to get away for a couple days. I go, I wish I'd gone first. <laughs> what would be the worldly wisdom in that moment? Seriously, think about it. If I were to go with some other men and go, well, here's what just happened, they might say something like, well, you need, to, you need to put your foot down, take care of yourself, and be sure to get that time away. Nikki might go out with some other ladies, and they might go, well, you got to you know, don't let him overpower you. And you, got, you need to stand up for yourself. And if you need that, that's what you need to do. And so you can get this worldly wisdom and then come back together and it just becomes this fighting. You know what a Christian response would be in that moment? When I'm coming home and I'm going, I've got this burden and God has given me this woman to be able to say, I need you to help me bear this right now. And she's going, oh, I can't. I need you to bear mine right now. A good Christian response, instead of going, no, I need to go first, or her going, no, I need to go first, is for me to go, um, let's get the dog and let's go on a walk. And let's just get out and just catch up and just talk this through. 
And I want to have the attitude of how can I forego my rights that I have, my desires, to help you have the fullness of joy. And then she is going, how can I forego this to give you the fullness of joy? And it's two people now trying to uplift each other. That's what a Christian marriage is. It is very different from the world in which we live. Let me say to single people, if you are thinking about getting married, and you are not ready to take on this, the burden of another person, do yourself a favor and stay single. A Christian marriage doesn't say, what are you gonna do for me? It's how can I serve you? How can I bless you? And you wanna know how to get to the, whatever that is, the end of that marriage time is, for me, it's have I uplifted Nikki and honored her and loved her and sacrificed for her? Have I looked for ways that I can say, I will forego my rights for her joy and for her blessing? That's how you can get to whatever the end of that time looks like and look back with no regret. Now, the other thing they do is they went to offer a sacrifice and it says, according to what's said in the law of the Lord, and it says, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Let me read you briefly from Leviticus. This is talking about a woman that just had a baby in the Old Testament. When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So a one-year-old lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove. He shall offer it before the Lord, make atonement for her, then she shall be clean. And listen to what it says. If she cannot afford a lamb then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. This is God saying, this is the standard. But can you imagine going, I, I, can't, I can't afford that. And God goes, that's okay. This is, this is beautiful that almighty God is saying, let me make a way for the poor. And Mary and Joseph are coming and they're offering what the poor have to offer. Do I even need to say that um, <clears throat> if you are chasing money to find fulfillment in whatever phase of life you are, it will be empty. Your goal is just gonna be chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing. And we all know that, but it's so easy to do. I'm gonna embarrass myself. I went, um, this happened a few times. I went down to um, Cuba with my wife on a mission trip and I remember being there and my, my arrogant head was inflated a little bit because I remember thinking these poor people are looking at the wealthy Americans coming down and thinking, I wish I had what you had. That was my mindset. And I remember they had, this, um, they had this new church building they were building and I had just come from this big church in Dallas with a bunch of money just pillars and balconies and pipe organ, just like the most, like just beautiful, beautiful sanctuary, beautiful church, immaculate grounds where we lived and everything. And I remember walking with this translator, walking back and he's like, there it is. There's the new church, the church plant. We've been saving for years to build this. And you know what went through my mind? I thought, that is ugly. It was this like a concrete building and it wasn't, it had taken them years and it wasn't even finished still. And it was just this open air thing and it's Cuba. So it's incredibly hot. We're going this summer. So it's incredibly hot during this time <clears throat> and we're walking towards it and I'm walking towards it. And I have to say my head puffed up a little bit. I'm sure they would want what we have. If they were able to see the sanctuary we have, they would want a church like we have. And it was pretty humbling had a pretty long walk walking towards it with this translator and I started to hear something as I got closer and closer because it's this open air thing. It wasn't even finished, they didn't care. 
and I'm hearing them singing praise music with some other Americans that were there. So you hear English and then you hear Spanish and they're singing, um, Lord, I lift your name on high. If you remember that old praise chorus, Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, our debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. And I'm walking towards this building and I started thinking, we don't worship God like that. And in that three minute walk, my head was deflated from going, I'm sure they want what I have, to the rest of the trip I'm there going, how can I have what you have. Our money doesn't fill us up. God and God alone does. Now there's two people we're gonna get introduced to here, Simeon and Anna. Let me show you a picture of the temple so we can figure out about where this is. Can you put that up, uh, Grace or Matthew? Uh, There's an American football field to give you an idea. This is probably a little later temple, but it's uh, close enough, very detailed drawing as you can tell. Um, Here's what we have, so this is the temple. And outside of, by the way, there's not an American football field sitting next to the temple, just so I'm clear. That's for size comparison. That'd be pretty cool. Um, All right, so you've got the temple, and around the temple they have, they call it the court of the Gentiles. So anybody could go and approach. Then inside that you see, you'd come in, well, come in a couple ways, mainly this way. You'd go through, it was called the court of the women, which um, is a little bit of a misnomer, is basically male and female and children, Jews, could go into that court. Then you'd go a little bit farther towards the holy place, and there's another little court where the the men could go, the male Jews could go. And so what we're going to see is you're going to see Simeon and Anna, see Mary and Joseph, and so we don't know where exactly, but it would have been either, it was in the temple, so we know it's either around in the court of the Gentiles or in that women's courtyard right there. All right, let me show you this. Build a profile of this man, Simeon, especially in your head. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, okay, so he's there, whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. If you had asked me who Simeon was, I'd have said, oh, he's this priest that takes the baby and holds him up. And the reality is the text doesn't say he was a priest, and he probably wasn't because Luke probably would have included that. So this is just a man that's there. It says he will not see death, probably a reference to that he's an older gentleman. And so God, the Holy Spirit's revealing and saying, it's gonna be soon, you're gonna see the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit brings him to the temple, and look at what it says. He is righteous and he is devout. Righteous doesn't mean he's perfect. Righteous means he upholds the standards that he says he's going to uphold. It's like a lack of hypocrisy, that he lives rightly before God. This is not perfection. This is, um, I I know my mistakes. I I, I repent of my mistakes. He lives righteously. And then um, when it says he's devout, the way to think of it is uh, he is very careful to be righteous in his life. He is very consistent in his righteousness in his life. So here's this old man up at the temple. The spirits brought him there, and, uh, and he is living righteously, and he's waiting for, it says, the consolation of Israel. Now, Anna is very similar. Um, it says later that she's an older woman as well. She is um, fasting and praying day and night. She comes up. She starts speaking joy to all around her at the temple because the Christ is here. Salvation is here. That's what she does. And it says she lived with her husband seven years and then was a widow 
either for 84 years or she was 84, we're not sure exactly. But let me just tell you, in that day and age especially, think about who Luke has talked about to his Greek audience. Um, who's the first one? Elizabeth, who's had a baby. Uh, Mary, who has had a baby. And then you have this woman that he talks about. And remember what I said in the Greek culture, it's beauty and babies were the value for women. And he doesn't talk about any of that. He talks about this old woman, probably didn't even have a child, and um, he elevates her, and what he does is he talks about her character. This is one of the things I so desperately want for my daughters especially, is your value's not in your external beauty. Character matters. And Luke is teaching the Greeks this as he writes this. What's he doing? It says he's waiting for the consolation or the deliverance of Israel. Might sound kind of boring, He's just living righteously going, waiting for this whole thing that Israel's gonna be saved, Israel's gonna be rescued. It is a life well lived. Look at what he says. He came in the spirit to the temple. The parents brought him in the child, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your, ser- your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Be a Greek audience and think about, is salvation just for the Jews? He says, you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is great news. There is a way that we can get to the end of our days and say, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon and Anna will probably not make the papers. They made the most important paper, I guess. They're here. But in our day and age, the Simeons and Annas just get taken for granted. That's boring. Do, do something different. Living faithfully and consistently for God Almighty. These are two people, by the way. If you read a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia to go, okay, what about Simeon and Anna? All they do is take this text and rearrange the words a little bit so they're not plagiarizing because we don't know anything else about them except what we see here about these two people. I read this and I go, I want to live 100% for Jesus Christ, for his work, for his purposes, whatever arrows the culture wants to try and throw at me, bring it on. I'm gonna surround myself with this army of other Christians that are gonna stand with me and we will stand for God in the time in which we live. Now, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I've worked at a lot of churches, or three, three churches for, for some time, a lot of people. I've met a lot of people. I, percentage-wise, know few people that live like that. But I will never forget the people that do. That's the way that we live. Let me give you a couple application points here. One is, um, I'm gonna encourage you to pause and fast forward. I'll tell you what I mean. Young people don't even know. They're like, the finger on your phone thing? No, no, remember VCRs, cassette tapes, all the the pencil, all the good stuff. Um, Pause and fast forward. I I alluded to it with me and my wife that I'll go to her and go, I, I gotta get away. Or she'll come and just go, I've just got to get, life is just hitting me like this and I need to press the pause button so I can get some clarity on, on what God would have for me. And then to fast forward, this, I do this about three or four times a year, 
twice I go by myself camping. I take July off and my sabbatical's kind of broken up. So I take July off and I usually do another time. And it's just sitting and thinking, God, what do you have for me? What is the future that you have? And if I can just pause and get that out and then fast forward to go, what would it, what would it look like if, if my last day was tomorrow? What if Hannah graduated tomorrow? What would that look like? What, what, if, what if Nikki were to go talk to her friends about, what if she stood up here and said, let me tell you about my husband and told you all about me? What would she say? Am I doing that right? God, am I, where am I off? We need to pause and get that picture and then we can come back and start living this time so when we get here, we don't have to look back Amen. with regret. I'm gonna tell you a couple very practical things. Um, some people, if you'd like to come here, you let us know, sanctuary is open. We'll stay out of your hair. If you're a single parent and that sounds impossible because you've got to get a sitter, you let us know and we'll make sure that sitter is covered so you can do this. This is that important to do. And number two, what do we do? This is the big thing. We're going to end here. What do we do? We get to this point and look back in regret and we can't undo it. And so we just live with regret. We try to push them down, ignore them, justify them. Or we do, the, the, big, the big thing is you gotta learn to forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You need somebody else to enable the forgiveness. Let me show you. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and Mary said to his mother, this is verse 34, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He's saying this boy is going to grow up and a sword will pierce your heart, Mary. This is a reference to she is going to stand there and I know we all think our kids are perfect. He really was. And Mary is having to stand there and watch her perfect son die. And there's no better description than a sword will pierce your own soul. What Jesus did on the cross was difficult. It was painful. And this is important. It was sufficient to pay the price for sin. Amen. So we don't have to sit and live with the regret. We don't have to figure out how do I forgive myself because we know we can't and so it's just pushed down. What do we do with the regret that we have? Here it is. If you're carrying that regret and maybe when I started talking about stuff, you're going, oh, I'm starting to feel really bad. I don't want you to feel guilty. I wanna get rid of that for you. That we take the regret we have and we nail that regret to the cross once and for all that we say what happened at the cross was sufficient, that I am forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for you, because you can live a life where you say, may your servant now depart in peace. I got a buddy in Dallas. I got a call from him I wasn't expecting. Uh, this, was several, this was before we moved here, several years ago, and um, <clears throat> he was part of this improv troupe that I was in, and he was always like funny and outgoing and all that, and um, he was not on this phone call because he had just gotten surprising news that his wife had passed. And she was, um, I'll, I'll just piece together the story and tell you what happened. But I was over, I, I said, I'm on my way. And I went and spent the night at his house. And um, <clears throat> his wife passed and she was an unbelievably godly woman. Unbelievably, one of the most godly women, one of the most godly people I've ever met. Uh, just unbelievable. Let me just piece it together. So um, she was there watching their grandkid and um, something happened in her heart and in her brain. They're not sure which was first, but two things happened. And it looks like she knew that she was about to go. 
And she was a young woman. She was in her uh, probably late, early 50s, maybe, maybe late 50s. And she took the child that she was watching and put him there and put um, pillows and some stuff around to, to support him. And then she got down, they found her on her knees with her elbows wedged in the cushions and her hands like this. And my buddy Brad, I said, what was happening? He said, I know what was happening. She was praying. And I said, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to know what she was praying? And he said, I don't wonder what she was praying. I know what she was praying. He said, two things. Lord, protect this child. And the second thing was, can't wait to see you. That she is ready to go and be with him. She lived, she's an example, her name's Celia. She lived her life devout, righteous for the Lord. And she could depart in peace. That's my prayer and wish for all of us. 